Hello, I'm Rosie Hill and I'm a Senior Associate in the Health and Life Sciences team at Global Council and this is the March edition of our podcast series, The Global Month Ahead. At the beginning of each month, we get together with colleagues from across GC to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments that will define the month to come. You can expect to focus on issues with broader geopolitical and economic importance, and we will try to make sure that you know more than your friends and colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we will focus on the UK's much-anticipated budget announcement, this month's G20 summit, and what to look out for in the Chinese government's upcoming two sessions meeting. On the 15th of March, the UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will be announcing the spring budget and a forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility will be announced alongside. This will be his second statement since he became Chancellor after the autumn budget he set out last November, which followed his predecessor Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous mini-budget a couple of months before. With a major cost-of-living crisis impacting UK household budgets, remaining fears of a recession and a war in Europe, the Chancellor has certainly got a full entree. To talk about these different topics, I am joined by Saskia Giro-Reeves, who is an associate in the UK politics and policy team. Saskia, perhaps we can kick off with you explaining to our listeners what is the budget and why is it important? So the spring budget is essentially an opportunity for the Chancellor to provide an update to Parliament and also the public on the state of the UK economy since the previous autumn statement in November that you mentioned, as well as to sort of announce any further economic plans for 2023 and beyond. So in terms of why it's important, the budget is broadly expected to sort of provide insight into the path ahead for business and personal taxes, alongside the government's broader vision for innovation and R&D strategy, as well as sort of measures aimed at reducing labour market inactivity, as well as boosting economic growth. How might recent economic developments impact the outlook for public finances? And how will this affect Hunt's options for the spring budget, do you think? So the UK recession is now expected to be much shallower than initially predicted, with the Bank of England now expecting a smaller contraction of the UK's economic output in 2023 um, than under the OBR's November forecast. This reflects numerous factors. Firstly, energy prices have fallen, reducing the fiscal cost of the energy price guarantee on government. Secondly, lower interest rates on government debt are pushing down spending on debt interest. And finally, there's been a higher than expected revenue across a range of taxes. So specifically, income taxes and national insurance contributions are running at just over $6 billion above forecast in the first 10 months of this financial year. But despite all this, it's important to remember that it is far less clear that these improvements will persist into the, both the medium and the long term where the outlook remains arguably much more challenging. Even if the outlook for borrowing in the medium term has improved since November, it is likely to still be much worse than the forecast a year ago, for example. Therefore, room for either permanent tax cuts or spending increases that are not offset elsewhere remains arguably limited for Hunt. With a, as Rosie mentioned, with the cost of living crisis impacting household budgets, fears of recession, as well as war in Europe, the Chancellor is likely to have a tricky entry and will have to make some very difficult decisions. So while some changes will be unveiled at the spring budget, the uh, spring budgets don't actually tend to include major shifts in policy. 
Um, and Hunt already has signalled that this announcement will be a sort of slimmed down fiscal plan. Thanks, Saskia. You talk about changes we can expect to see in the budget. What do you think we can expect to see? Do you think that we are likely to see anything regarding perhaps public pay disputes? And I think listeners will be keen to know what's likely to happen regarding energy bill support as well. So we can expect Hunt's budget to broadly focus on measures that will support the current Sunak government's economic plan to half inflation, grow the economy and reduce public debt. Hunt has said that his economic plan will be based on the four E pillars of enterprise, education, employment and everywhere. He's also stated the government's long term ambition is for the UK to have the most competitive tax regime of any country. Of course, we don't know precisely what the Chancellor will announce, but we do have some idea of the kind of policies Hunt may propose in terms of taxes, addressing labour inactivity and energy bills. So despite warnings from business leaders that higher taxes will hamper growth, Hunt will likely go ahead with the planned rise in corporation tax, which is scheduled to take effect from April this year. The change, which was first announced by Rishi Sunak in his 2021 spring budget when he was chancellor, will see businesses face a 6% point increase in the corporation tax rate, which will rise from its current 19% um, rate to 25%. So this is expected to provide a net sort of around 18 billion a year for the treasury. However, just as corporation tax goes up, investment incentives are also scheduled to be removed. So the corporation tax super deduction, which allows businesses to cut their tax by 25p for every £1 that they invest, will end on March 31st this year as well. Therefore, we may see in the budget some changes to tax relief for business investment. In particular, these are likely to regard equipment, vehicles and tools. However, this is unlikely to make up the difference lost from the super deduction. Furthermore, fuel duty is supposed to rise by RPI inflation in April, which would add about 7p to the price of a litre of fuel. A temporary 5p duty cut, which was also announced by Sunak as Chancellor in March of last year, is set to expire this month. Hunt is likely to extend this 5p cut to fuel duty by another year, which will obviously be to the benefit of UK vehicle users. There have also been suggestions that Hunt could reverse a promise from Sunak that the basic rate of income tax will fall to 19% in 2024. This is, um, as HMRC is now saying, that the policy would cost just under $7 for the Treasury in the 2024-25 fiscal year. However, as you mentioned, Rosie, perhaps the sort of most acute short-term challenge for the Chancellor relates to public sector pay and the impacts of the ongoing strike action that I think most of us will have been affected by. The government is under a lot of pressure to commit to a stronger public sector pay deal. So at the moment, existing departmental budgets will only allow for a 3.5% public sector pay rise. Hunt may go further and announce a 5% increase. However, the Chancellor will likely be wary of going in opposition to the Bank of England, which is raising interest rates to reduce inflation and has warned that a large pay rise may actually fuel price rises. Nonetheless, the Treasury has reported that a 5% increase in for public sector pay would actually carry quite a low risk of contributing to high private sector pay growth. And there is also supposedly some talk of backdating the payment for public sector workers. 
sort of in a similar vein in order to deal with labor inactivity, Hunt may also um, increase the pension's lifetime allowance. This would encourage workers over 50 to come back into the workforce, which we've seen quite a few leave post-pandemic. He may also bring forward the state pension age, which would go from 66 to 68 by 2025 or 2026. This is actually currently scheduled to rise to 67 in 2028 and 68 between 2044 and 46. So another key issue is obviously energy bills. The government's energy price guarantee, which caps the cost for households, is scheduled to rise from £2,500 to £3,000 on April 1st this year. So support businesses will also become more targeted from the state as well, as previously announced. However, campaign groups, including Citizens Advice, as well as business lobbies, lobby groups have urged the government to extend the support to protect the economy from still rising costs. Although energy prices are still falling, households will likely see their bills spike by several hundred pounds this year as the government support tapers off. Despite speculation, Hunt may extend the higher cap. However, he has made it clear that he does not favour blanket support. So if he does make any changes to the guarantee, he may take an approach that is more means tested. However, the manner that this, or rather the format this takes is uncertain at the moment. We want to turn now to the G20 summit, which has been taking place in Delhi this week, with the international community looking more divided than ever over Ukraine. The preceding G20 finance ministers and central bank governors meeting ended acrimoniously a week earlier, after Russia and China refused to endorse a statement condemning the invasion. And a year on from the start of the conflict in Russia, most international meetings and summits are still dominated by the crisis, with it often seeming that divisions over Ukraine prevent much other business from getting done. To talk about all of this, I'm joined by John Garvey, our Practice Director for International Policy. John, perhaps we can kick off by reminding people of what the G20 does, and in particular, what role it has in terms of addressing the crisis in Ukraine. Hi, Rosie. Um, pleasure to be here. Well, the first thing to say, I think, is it's often quite hard to determine exactly what the G20's role is. So the G20 is the world's 19 largest economies, plus the EU, but then quite a lot of other people join depending on the format of the summit. So Spain has joined as a, as a guest ever since its inception. Uh, this summit will also see um, ASEAN attend as an institution and the African Union and then a raft of other countries from uh, what has often been described as the global south. Um, so it really depends on what the host wants as to who is invited. Um, I think it's important to say that the G20 has always basically been a child of crisis, so it's never really, it's, 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 its operation hasn't ever really been um, particularly visible or newsworthy when a crisis hasn't been going on. It was founded in 99 and 1999, just after the Asian financial crisis. And it was originally a forum for finance ministers and central bank governors to discuss primarily economic and financial issues. And then it really came to prominence um, in the wake of the financial crisis. That was the point at which it became a summit, which also had heads of government. Its most famous meeting was in 2009. Uh, in London, which resulted in the 1.1 trillion US dollar stimulus program. And really, ever since, um, both commentators and uh, quite a lot of the countries uh, that are within the G20 have hoped that it could do something similarly groundbreaking again. But 
it's fair to say that in the last 10 years, there hasn't been the political will to generate that kind of uh, really groundbreaking announcement. Great. Um, and India took on the presidency of G20 earlier this year. Can you talk a bit to us about what its priorities are and how successful it's been in delivering them so far? And also, you mentioned just now about how... Um, oh, sorry, Tom, I'm going to rephrase that. I'll just read that question. Sorry. Thanks, John. India took on the presidency of the G20 earlier this year. Can you talk to us a bit about what its priorities are and how successful it's been in delivering on these? Sure. So India, as you said, took on the presidency earlier this year. One of the in interesting things about uh, India's presidency is that it's actually in the middle of a troika. So it took over the presidency from Indonesia last year and will pass the presidency on to Brazil at the end of the year. So I think for almost the first time in the G20's history, that's three of the largest, uh, three of the largest economies from the so-called global south having consecutive presidencies and one of one of the traditional problems with the g20 has been uh that there isn't a secretariat so there isn't really any form of rolling agenda or sort of underpinning institution to make sure that issues persist but indonesia Indo india and brazil have tried to coordinate to some extent uh to create more of a focus and that focus has really been on um firstly Firstly, uh, being clearer about the needs of the so-called global south. So, uh, one of the one of the um, innovations of the G20 was supposed to be that this is much more representative format than than the G7, which is often mean often been cast as a rich man's club. But the G20 is seen certainly by India, Indonesia, Brazil as not really having progressed the interests of those countries so what india has said it really wants to focus on is getting the sustainable development goals back on track focusing on food security focusing on energy security focusing on climate finance making the link back to the last cop and in all of that it's important to say what it doesn't really want to focus on what it doesn't really want to focus on is russia ukraine now, obviously, that's going to be impossible, given what's going on. But it's very interesting going into the presidency and then going into this summit particularly, what both the Prime Minister Modi and uh, the Foreign Minister Jaishenko have been saying. Uh, and there's there's one quote that I think really encapsulates it from a couple of days ago. The Foreign Minister Jaishenko said, Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems, but the world's problems are not Europe's problems. That is very much the way um, Russia-Ukraine is seen in India. India is obviously famously non-aligned in terms of foreign policy, meaning it's tried to never take sides between the West and Russia. That is going to be in very stark relief going into this summit. And do you think India can do that? I think... India are treading a very fine line. Um, so they have been very riled by criticism from um, the US and to a lesser extent the UK over over the past year. So India, India, in keeping with that non-alignment, um, has abstained in every vote in the UN General Assembly on on um, the Russian invasion. And over the last year. Uh, it has bought even more Russian weapons, and uh, Russia now 
India India is, I think, Russia's largest importer of oil. It accounts for 25%. It's actually massively stepped that up, overtaking Iraq and Saudi Arabia as its primary source of oil. Now, the way India is framing this is we have a billion people, we have uh, energy needs that the West uh, won't fulfill, and sort of telling us that we can't deal with Russia completely ignores our security on one hand, because you know these are the people that have been selling us the weapons that keep us safe from China and Pakistan, and um, its energy needs on the other, because it can't... <laughs> it can't easily make a switch to other sources. So that that is very much the Indian account that the West's the West condemnation of non-alignment um, re, uh, is based on double standards and hypocrisy. Now, the, the actual stance, I think, within the Prime Minister's office and foreign ministry will be a bit more nuanced than that because India is also very conscious that its security is increasingly dependent on its agreements through the Quad with US, the US, Japan, and Australia. And it really doesn't want uh, to push the US away in any fundamental sense. So it really is it really is trying to balance uh, its interests between Russia, China, and the US. Um, and as I said, it's a very difficult, difficult tightrope uh, to stay on. Absolutely. Moving slightly on, I saw that G20 finance ministers discussed the proposals for a global minimum tax last week. Do you think we'll see further progress on that agenda this year or has it stalled? So so this is one of one of the really interesting things about the G20 that the G20 itself um, can't agree things in a way that uh, in a way that allows them to be directly implemented. But what the G20 can do, because it is much more representative than the G7 or indeed the OECD in terms of North and South, um, is give enough political impetus for whatever is agreed there to then be translated through other bodies. Now that's essentially what has happened with the global taxation proposal. So they have been developed in the OECD for uh, well over 10 years, there was a headline agreement that was sort of delivered jointly by the OECD and the G20 a bit over a year ago, which uh, which eventually sort of uh, evolved out of the G20 and became an agreement that was signed by over 140 countries. That agreement, um, that agreement stipulated that there should be a global minimum tax and also stipulated that there should be a reallocation mechanism so that profits are reallocated from the jurisdictions in which they are made, uh, sorry, from the jurisdictions in, in which they are booked to the jurisdictions in which they are made. But that whole agenda is uh, in danger of collapse this year because um, that second mechanism, the reallocation mechanism, so-called Pillar 1 of the treaty, uh, has doesn't appear to have sufficient US support to be implemented into law. So the the push, if you like, at the finance minister's meeting last week was to say really that we have got to do something about this. We've got to put the political impetus back behind it. It's very interesting that India is trying to push that because it has its own issues um, with taxation. But it's it's sort of typical of whether or not whether or not a presidency will eventually be seen as a success you know can it can it really drum up the authority and the coordination and the political will 
to change the stakes on an issue like issue like this, which would have genuinely um, profound financial and economic impacts. This year's two sessions, the annual gathering of China's top policymakers, is a special one. It is the first session in Xi Jinping's third term as president and general secretary of the Communist Party of China, and will also see a number of changes in the top leadership and the wider party structure, something that usually only happens every five years. It also comes at a time when China's economy is struggling after three years of its zero COVID policy, which makes the content of the government's growth targets, policy priorities and spending plans, which will be presented on the 5th of March, more important than ever. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by our resident China expert, Jens Prestus, an associate director in our global macro practice. Welcome, Jens. Let's start with the topic most people will be watching, the government's GDP growth target for the year. Do you agree with the consensus view of 5% growth? And what do you think will be driving this growth? First, I would say that they, I hope they drop the GDP targets because setting a target that can really only be met if you take on more debt and pour those funds into unproductive investments that creates growth in the short term. So it might sound good in the short term, but it slows growth in the long term because an increasing amount of resources need to be used to pay down the debt that you have invested in. You've used that debt to invest in things that don't really yield any income. So you have to use take on more debt to service that. So that's not really a good long-term strategy. However, that said, I'm pretty confident they will continue to set a target because they usually do. They'll probably set something like 5% or higher or 5.5% or higher, which is something they've started doing lately instead of just setting a set target. I personally think maybe it'll be closer to 6%. And I say this mainly because 2020, 2022 was a very bad year. So you have a low base, you have that base effect that will just help you by default. And so you'll definitely see a pretty substantial rebounding consumption and household consumption, which was almost absent last year because of COVID restrictions. So in that sense, we'll probably see 2023 to be quite similar to 2021, which was also, which was basically the first rebound year after the 2020 COVID lockdowns. So you'll probably see a similar trend like that. And in 2021, the economy actually, growth came in at 8.1%, which was 2.1 percentage points above target. So I think there might be some surprises this year and that the actual the actual growth number will be will be greater than, than what people expect. And the second question is probably more important, in, in my opinion, what will be driving growth as well, and not just what the growth target will be. And I think the main reason for that is, as I said, you will want to see consumption and business investments being the, the things that will be driving growth rather than uh, investment in infrastructure, etc. As I said, which is something that would really just accumulate more debt, and it's something China doesn't really need more of because they have probably have the largest capital stock in the world already, so they don't necessarily need that. But I, I do think we'll see more consumption this year. We might not see as much as some people think because there's been a lot of talk about uh, a huge pile of excess savings, for instance, because people haven't been spending money over the last year. Most of that savings is held by people on the lower income groups, people that won't necessarily spend that extra savings that have been accumulated, people on the lower and middle income groups who've seen job losses, very low, weak income growth, they will probably probably not spend that much. So that means that we'll probably not see a huge rebound like some people expect. And then you might then ask, will the government try to do something about that? Uh, will they try to support households? I think 
they might not want to do too much this year because they know that 2024 will be even tougher because you won't have that rebound and that low base effect that will help you. So I think they will probably save some of the firepower for, for next year and that they will be, if they can achieve 5-6% growth this year, then they'll probably be very happy with that and then they can save some of that firepower for um, uh, for next year. Interesting. And moving over to overarching and more long-term policy themes, what do you see being given priority this year but beyond as well? We hear lots about industrial policy and supporting the technology sector as the race heats up with the US and the EU. Will this remain a priority and what does this mean for foreign businesses with an interest in China? In terms of policy priorities, I don't think we'll see any huge surprises. This has been the the focus for the last few years, as you say, in part because of increased geopolitical tensions and, and competition increasingly in the industrial policy space with especially the, EU, especially the US, but also increasingly the EU. So we already now, two weeks ago, President Xi Jinping, he was talking about the need to spend much more on basic research, for instance, which is something China doesn't spend that much on, especially relative to the US, which spends a huge amount as a percentage of GDP on basic research. And this is something China understands that it really, really lags on. So we, we've already seen some signs in, in that sense that that's um, R&D tech science is going to be a big focus. They also this week released a long-term digital economy development plan for 2025. They have a set of targets and then also longer term 2035. And so that also... and. Interestingly, that plan focused a lot on how to better integrate the, re- the digital economy with the real economy. So how to make agriculture, manufacturing, transportation, energy, etc. smarter, if you will. So that kind of shows you what they're focusing on um, rather than a huge focus on supporting um, platform uh, the platform economy and internet companies, which some people will probably be a bit disappointed because we've also seen a lot of chatter about pivots in, in, in Beijing, about supporting companies like Tencent and Alibaba, etc. I think maybe that's slightly premature because we've also seen this week that government ministries and um, regulators are talking about how to crack down and more tightly regulate. I don't actually like to use the word crack down, but now I said it, but at least more tightly regulate what they call unproductive tech firms. So in this instance, they were referencing short video industry. And I don't think that's by accident that they say that at the same time as they're launching this plan to better integrate digital economy with real economy. So there's a definite need to understanding that we need these tech champions. They have lots of good resources, but those resources need to be better sort of channeled into the real economy. So I think that's um, something we'll see more of during the National People's Congress. In terms of foreign businesses, it's kind of a a two-edged sword because in a lot of sector, in the life sciences industry, for instance, that that you know a lot better than than I do, uh, in China, they're, they're lagging very far behind. And so they still want foreign firms in life sciences, aerospace, and many other industries because they still require their um, technology and expertise that they don't possess themselves. So in that sense, there's lots of opportunities for foreign firms when it comes to science and technology. But at the same time, we're also seeing more and more often that when you have Chinese firms that come up and start to be able to compete with the foreign firms, then officials in China, they're not so keen on supporting these foreign firms anymore. And that is obviously a trend that we'll just see more and more of as Chinese firms become increasingly competitive. So there's a bit of a, um, a bit of a two-edged um, sword there for foreign businesses, lots of opportunities, but they, those opportunities might not last forever. And finally, I just want to get your take on the new leadership team and expected restructuring of the party state apparatus. What can we expect from the incoming premier, Li Jiang? He's an interesting guy because when it became clear that Li Jiang was 
probably going to become the new premier, then people are a bit like, okay, he's just one of these guys, and um, it, this is not going to be a good thing. But if you look at his resume, he's he spent pretty much all of his life in big manufacturing hubs, the big economic powerhouses of China, working with private businesses, working with foreign businesses. He's the guy who brought Tesla to Shanghai. He's he knows these these things very well, and he's one that can communicate with the private sector, with foreign businesses, and more importantly, he's also a guy who who knows Xi Jinping very well um, from um, from time spent together in different provinces on the East Coast. And so I think uh, the ability of the top team to work together is probably going to be better now than it has been in the past because this is the first time that Xi Jinping basically has been able to pick his own team without any opposition from, from other people within the party. I think that is actually somewhat positive and I think it'll be interesting to watch the first press conference, which is the press conference that concludes the, the National People's Congress where we'll get to to see Li Qiang first in front for the first time in front of the cameras. He'll be able to sort of lay out his priorities. I reckon he'll put a great emphasis on on foreign business, foreign investment, because that is something that has been a recurring theme over the last few few big meetings. And he's someone that knows that well. So I think that will be a, a big focus. And I wanted to just mention one um, one other thing too quickly, which is we'll probably see quite a lot of restructuring in terms of the party state structure. So we'll see the party basically taking over quite a lot from the state. So as you said in, um, at the beginning, this is something that happens when you have a restructuring of the um, state um, apparatus. Something happens usually every five years. And we've already seen, we don't know too much in detail, but we know we've seen some rumors. And, and if we look at the readouts from some recent meetings from the second plenum, for instance, from this week, uh, it seems they're likely that we will see uh, the Central Financial Work Commission, which is a, a commission that was set about after the Asian financial crisis to protect financial stability in China. That might very well now be set up again. And it seems like financial stability, because of difficult external situation conditions, but also because what is happening in China, the reforming the real estate sector, that's having a huge impact on the economy and the financial system. So it seems like they want the party to be more on top of some of these some of these issues. And we've also seen from from the from the readouts that it looks very much likely that a key theme from this restructuring is that the party really needs to be embedded much more in terms of strategic decision making at the company level. And that's both at public companies, but also private companies as in state-owned enterprises and private enterprises. So the idea that the private sector will be left alone now, that the focus is on the economy, we need to restart and everything, I think that's a slight fantasy and that we'll see much more party interference into decision making on the private level going forward. It sounds like we'll have a busy month. As always, if you or your business is impacted by the stories we've discussed in this episode, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can find my contact details along with today's speakers in the podcast description or at www.global-council.com. Thanks to Saskia, John and Jens for joining us today. My name is Rosie Hill and we'll see you next month. Goodbye.